This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different from what we usually do. It's not going to be a long interview or a roundtable or a debate. Instead, I'm going to share my thoughts with you. My thoughts about the recent jaw-dropping congressional testimony of the presidents of Penn, Harvard, and MIT. I'm sure you've seen it. My thoughts about the resignation of Penn's president a few days later and whether it's a good or a bad thing. And most importantly, what I think can be done to fix our obviously broken universities. As you can imagine, I have no shortage of views here. We're going to be doing more like this over the next few months, experimenting with op-ed-style talks and takes. We hope you enjoy it, but as always, we want to hear your feedback and hear what works and what doesn't. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with my take of the week. How American higher education broke and the first thing we should do to fix it. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On December 5th, America witnessed the most sordid congressional testimony in recent memory. At MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does have, not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. I watched, and probably you did too, in shock as the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania, three supposedly of the greatest universities, not just in America, but in the world, struggled to respond to basic questions about the obvious rise of anti-Semitism on their campuses. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct, yes or no? In one unforgettable and hugely viral exchange, Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik asked Penn President Liz McGill if calling for the genocide of Jews violates her school's rules 
or code of conduct. If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? Liz McGill sort of smiles at the question and then ultimately says, It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. Then there was Harvard president, Claudine Gay, who, when faced with a similar round of questioning by Stefanik, responded this way. We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. That's interesting, because just last year, Harvard told students in a mandatory Title IX training that using the wrong pronouns for a person constitutes abuse. And I quote, it said that any words used to lower a person's self-worth are, quote, verbal abuse, and that, quote, sizeism and fat phobia contribute to an environment that perpetuates violence. In September 2021, MIT allowed a mob to cancel a public lecture on climate change by my friend and geophysicist Dorian Abbott because he had the gall to criticize affirmative action. Or take Penn. In 2019, Penn shut down an event with former ICE director Tom Homan because students were chanting so loudly to abolish ICE and it made it impossible to hold a conversation. And yet here these same schools were, last week, suddenly discovering the virtue of free speech. The satirical news site The Babylon Bee pretty much hit the nail on the head in a single headline a few months ago. Harvard student leaves lecture on microaggressions to attend a kill the Jews rally. It was that same hypocrisy, that same double standard, that millions of people witnessed that day in front of Congress. Millions of people, including Penn's donors, some of whom decided to close their checkbooks. And then, less than a week after the hearing, Liz McGill, along with Penn's chairman of the Board of Trustees, resigned. Now, as listeners of Honestly and readers of the free press know, I am the first to stand against cancel culture. In some cases, I've literally been the first person to defend unpopular victims of it, people who have been fired or publicly shamed or forced to resign from their jobs because of public pressure for basically nothing, from a mistake or a minor, totally blown out of proportion incident. The very first episode of this podcast— The very first episode of Honestly that we ever aired was about a man named Majdi Wadi. OG listeners will remember, but he's a Palestinian immigrant whose life's work, a very successful hummus business in Minneapolis, was boycotted and decimated because an angry mob on Twitter found anti-Semitic and bigoted tweets that his teenage daughter had posted and deleted and then apologized for years earlier. I warned in that first episode that holding someone to account and ruining their lives because of one mistake they made was un-American and wrong, and that in this particular instance, a man was being held to account because of the sins of their teenage daughter. I felt it was profoundly illiberal and anti-American to judge a person based on the actions of their relative, no matter how vile the tweets were, and they were vile. But she apologized for them, and she did them when she was a teenager. 
I also defended biology professor Carol Hooven, who was driven out of her position at Harvard for insisting that biological sex is binary, and she said so as a biologist. I defended Kathleen Stock, a professor who was hounded out of the University of Sussex, tarred as a kind of witch for much of the same reasons as Hooven. I do not think USC professor Greg Patton should have been suspended from his job for saying a Chinese word that happened to sound like an English slur. I don't believe that University of Massachusetts Dean Leslie Neal Boylan should have been fired for writing in an email, and this is true, black lives matter, but also everyone's lives matter. What all of these people have in common is that none of them actually did anything wrong. None of them did anything at all other than violate newspeak, other than offend our culture's new authoritarians who want to usher in a world in which saying there are two sexes is the moral equivalent of screaming the N-word in public. So the question is this, did Penn President Liz McGill do something wrong? Or is she another victim of yet another angry mob, only this time a mob on the other side of the political and ideological aisle? It's a worthy question, and it's one that my colleagues and I don't all see eye to eye on. Peter Savodnik, Free Press senior editor, needless to say he's a guy whose views I deeply respect, argued this week in our pages that McGill's resignation, and I quote, is a blow to academic freedom. It amounts to little more than a cave, yet another prominent American institution succumbing to the angry mob. For Jewish students specifically, he argued, and I quote, it will make things worse by making an already illiberal academic environment even more illiberal. Now, let me first say that I oppose cancel culture no matter if it's done by the right or the left or anyone in between. But being opposed to cancel culture, obsessive and odious mob attacks over minutia for the sake of casting out the independent-minded and sending a message to everyone else to shut up or you could be next, does not mean being opposed to anyone ever getting in trouble for actually screwing up. And in my view, and of course it's a judgment call, that's what actually happened here. Liz McGill didn't lose her job because she was canceled. She lost her job because she revealed in front of the entire country that she wasn't up to the task of running one of the most important universities in the world. Think about it this way. If the quarterback on a football team blows a key game in the playoffs, does the coach have an obligation to keep him on the field? Of course not. He had a job to do, and he didn't do it. Another athlete should come in and replace him. That's my view with Liz McGill, who failed the very basic duties that her role and responsibilities required of her. The job of a university president is not merely to point out the basic constitutional rights of students to scream for a violent uprising against Jews or anyone else. And yes, those students have those legal rights. As Nadine Strassen and Pamela Paretsky wrote recently in the pages of the Free Press, even anti-Semites deserve free speech. I agree with that. If you haven't read that piece, by the way, we'll link to it in the show notes. But is pointing out obvious legal rights why we have university presidents? Is their job simply to remind us that people are allowed to shout terrible things and that the First Amendment protects them from doing so? Never mind the glaring hypocrisy of the fact that these very same people would never defend the right of white students to march through campus calling for violence against black students or straight students to march through campus calling for violence against gay students. Both of those scenarios would simply be unimaginable. 
but never mind the double standard, which is a big part of the story and a big reason why people are angry. Take that off the table for just a moment. Because even if that hypocrisy and double standard wasn't at play, my answer would still be the same. And that is that the job of a university president is not merely to point out what is and isn't legally permissible. The job of a university president is to offer leadership, intellectual leadership, of course, but also moral leadership. Penn's motto, and I kid you not, is literally this, laws without morals are useless. I want to repeat that again because I kind of couldn't believe that that was the motto. Laws without morals are useless. So can anyone actually look at McGill's performance, let alone that of Harvard's Claudine Gay, now under fire for alleged plagiarism, or MIT's Sally Kornbluth, and walk away and say, now that is a leader with admirable moral judgment? Can anyone look at those women and say, if we could choose anyone to lead these schools in this moment, this is who we would choose? Can anyone look at these three people and say they offer the kind of inspiring leadership and moral clarity that the country so desperately needs at this moment? I think those questions answer themselves. But where Peter Savodnik and I agree is that McGill's resignation doesn't actually solve much of anything. It certainly doesn't do anything to remedy the grotesque hypocrisy and double standards and moral confusion that have corrupted American higher education. But what that congressional testimony did and what McGill's resignation does is finally and at long last pull back the curtain. There's no more pretending that this incident at this school was a one-off, that this story is just nutpicking. No more. McGill's resignation, which was a direct outcome of that testimony, reveals to everyone, plain as day, how deeply American higher education is broken. And the question now, the urgent question facing not just Penn and Harvard and MIT, but all schools and all parents and all students, is what we are actually going to do about it. More about that after the break. Stay with us. How do we fix American higher education? My view is that above all else, we need to return higher education to its original purpose, to pursue the truth for the sake of human flourishing, and to pass on the knowledge that is the basis of our exceptional civilization. We do that by doing a few very basic, but I guess right now they feel quite radical things. Things like committing to intellectual freedom, not ideology. Things like hiring based on merit. Things like doing away with double standards on speech. And yes, walking the walk. Not sending our checks and our children to schools that betray the most fundamental liberal and American values. But above all, starting today, we need to uproot root and branch the ideology that has supplanted truth at the core of American higher education. And that ideology goes by the name DEI. It was 20 years ago when I was a student at Columbia that I encountered this ideology for the first time and that I began to write about it. Of course, at the time, it was a nameless, niche worldview. But I noticed that it contradicted everything that I had been taught since I was a child. 
This was a worldview that replaced basic ideas of good and evil with a new rubric, the powerless, good, and the powerful, necessarily bad. It replaced colorblindness with race obsession, ideas with identity, debate with denunciation, persuasion with public shaming, the rule of law with the fury of the mob. I noticed that people were to be given authority and power in this new order, not in recognition of their gifts, their hard work, their accomplishments, their talents, or their contributions to society, but in inverse proportion to the disadvantages their group had suffered, as defined by radical ideologues. When I raised alarm bells about this at the time, I was told by most of the adults I respected not to be so hysterical. Campuses were always hotbeds of radicalism, they said, and this ideology would surely dissipate as young people made their way in the world. But they were wrong. It didn't dissipate. Over the past two decades, I watched as this inverted worldview swallowed all of the crucial sense-making institutions of American life. Yes, universities, obviously, but also cultural institutions, including some I knew well, like the New York Times, as well as every major museum, book publishing company, philanthropy, media company. Then it moved to our medical schools and our law schools. It's taken root in the HR departments of every major corporation. It's inside of our high schools and even our elementary schools. This ideological takeover is so comprehensive that it's almost hard to notice it. And that's because it's everywhere. This ideology is obviously dangerous to Jews because in this new worldview, where fairness is measured by equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity, who do you think that singles out? If underrepresentation is the inevitable outcome of systemic bias, then overrepresentation, and Jews are just 2% of the American population, suggests not talent or hard work, but unearned privilege. This conspiratorial conclusion is actually very, very close to the hateful portrait of a small group of Jews divvying up the ill-gotten spoils of an exploited world, captured most powerfully in the protocols of the elders of Zion. But it isn't only Jews who suffer from the suggestion that merit and excellence are dirty words. It is America itself. It is strivers of every race, ethnicity, and class. That is why Asian American success, for example, is so suspicious. The percentages are off. The scores are too high. Where did you steal all of that success from? Of course, this new ideology doesn't come right out and say all of that. It doesn't even like to be named. Some call it wokeness or anti-racism or progressivism or safetyism or critical social justice or identity Marxism. Whatever term you use, what is clear is that this worldview has gained power in the world in a conceptual instrument called DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, in theory, all three of those words represent noble causes. They are, in fact, causes to which American Jews in particular have long been passionately devoted. The Jewish commitment to justice, real justice, and the Jewish American community's powerful and historic opposition to real racism is a source in our community of tremendous pride, rightfully so, and that should never waver. But in reality, DEI is not about those words. It uses those words as camouflage. Those words are actually now metaphors for an ideological movement bent on recategorizing every American, not as an individual, 
but as an avatar, an avatar of an identity group, a person's behavior prejudged according to that group, setting all of us up in a kind of zero-sum game. DEI calls itself progressive, but it is not. It doesn't believe in progress. It is explicitly anti-growth. It claims to promote equity or equality, but its answer to the challenge of teaching math or reading to disadvantaged children is to eliminate math and reading tests. It demonizes hard work, merit, family, and the dignity of the individual, all virtues that are the foundation of what makes America exceptional. The dangers of DEI have been made exceptionally clear by what's been happening on college campuses today. Campuses where professors are compelled to pledge fidelity to DEI in order to get hired, promoted, or tenured. Campuses where ever since October 7th, we've seen students and professors immersed not in facts, knowledge, or history, but in a dehumanizing ideology that has led them to celebrate or justify terrorism simply because the terrorists are what they call the oppressed and the victims are what they call, quote, white settler colonialists. But perhaps nothing has made the dangers of DEI clearer than last week when we saw those three university presidents fail to string together basic sentences about the difference between good and evil. Now, the antidote to this poison is not for the Jewish community to plead its cause before the intersectional coalition and to beg for higher ranking in the new ladder of victimhood. It's not to assign Jews protected status along other side minorities, because the solution to discrimination isn't more discrimination. That is always a losing strategy. And anyway, Jewish identity doesn't fit into this framework at all. Because is Judaism a race? If so, what color? Is it a religion, an ethnicity, a culture? See, Jews are by their very existence an affront to this black and white ideology. No, the solution is not to retrench DEI only this time including Jews. The solution is to dismantle the DEI regime that has enforced an illiberal and anti-Semitic worldview at nearly every American university. It is time to end DEI for good. No more standing by as people are encouraged to segregate themselves. No more forced declarations that you're going to prioritize identity over excellence. No more compelled speech. No more going along with little lies for the sake of being polite. It's time to stand up for what is right. Now, for anyone who thinks I'm blowing this out of proportion or exaggerating how much this matters, I want you to look back and to consider the history of Germany's universities, how the very same institutions that were once the envy of the world helped usher in the intellectual atmosphere that gave way to the rise of Hitler. As historian Neil Ferguson wrote in a very powerful piece in the free press this week called The Treason of the Intellectuals, and I quote, anyone who has a naive belief in the power of higher education to instill ethical values has not studied the history of German universities in the Third Reich. A university degree far from inoculating Germans against Nazism, made them more likely to embrace it. Today's academic leaders, of course, would never recognize themselves as heirs to people like Martin Heidegger, the greatest German philosopher of his generation, who jumped on the Nazi bandwagon and wore a swastika lapin on his lapel. 
Today's leaders will insist that Heidegger was on the right and they're on the left. But as Neil Ferguson reminds us, totalitarianism comes in two flavors, but the ingredients are the same. Yes, the Holocaust is the worst historical crime in human history. It's exceptional. But one of the things that makes it exceptional is that it was perpetrated by a highly sophisticated nation state that had within its borders the world's finest universities. As Neil writes, the lesson of German history for American academia should by now be clear. In Germany, to use the legalistic language of 2023, speech did cross into conduct. The final solution of the Jewish question began as speech. To be precise, it began as lectures and monographs and scholarly articles. It began in the songs of student fraternities. With extraordinary speed after 1933, however, it crossed into conduct. First, systemic pseudo-legal discrimination and ultimately a program of technocratic genocide. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? All of which is to say, this isn't just an issue for elite people that go to elite colleges. The stakes are much higher than that because what happens at universities matters. What we teach our young people matters. What we teach them about the goodness or the badness of our country and our civilization deeply matters. DEI is undermining liberalism and America, and that for which it stands, including the principles that have made it a place of unparalleled tolerance, opportunity, safety, and freedom for so many. DEI must end. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know. It was a bit of an experiment. We're going to be trying more of them in the coming months, and we really want to know what you make of them. You can reach out to us and tell us by writing us at tips at thefp.com. Tips at T-H-E-F-P dot com. As always, thanks for listening.